0: Hey, what's up storytellers? We recently celebrated our four year anniversary here at 88 Cups of Tea and reserved something pretty special just for our Patreon family. So four of our patrons won the chance to interview for a 10 minute segment that will be stitched to the end of upcoming podcast episodes. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time to fill out the application so thoughtfully. I was reading through your submissions and honestly, I was so impressed and truly so inspired by your personal stories and your creative stories that you're working on and want to share with the world. So thank you again for taking the time to do that and a huge congratulations to the following four winners, Melissa Bobby, Angeline Bully, Sarah Adams, and Melissa C. I am so excited about this and we are kicking off the first segment with Melissa Bobe, who is a huge fan of Jason Reynolds and says that gold comes out of his mouth every time he talks. So what a perfect pairing and I honestly could not describe my conversation with Jason in a better way. In Melissa's segment, we chat about her writing life, the manuscript she's working on and the challenges she's faced and why community is crucial to set you up for success. So be sure to look out for Melissa's segment right after my conversation with Jason. For those of you who might be new to 88 Cups of Tea, first of all, welcome, thank you so much for joining us. And second, I'm not sure if you knew, but we publish new featured articles and essays from some of your favorite authors and storytellers over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com. Most recently, we released articles from Sarah Faring, the author of The Tenth Girl, who wrote an actionable article on creating plot twists in your story. And we also have an article by Julie Kibler, author of Home for Erring and Outcast Girls, in which she cracks the mystery of outsider syndrome and brings you some pretty good news that might just free you from feeling like one. Our newest article is written by Brittany Morris, the author of Slay, where she breaks down the balance between writing too much and writing too little, how to protect your time, and how to throw away the guilty feeling of not doing enough. Head over to 88cupsoftea.com to read their articles and download the writing prompts they created exclusively for our storytellers. Before I introduce you to Jason Reynolds, a quick reminder for our listeners who are ready to query... Our friends at Gotham Writers have taught creative writing classes and built an incredible reputation for nearly 30 years, and their first ever Gotham Writers Conference in New York City on October 25th and 26th is dedicated to arming you with all the knowledge and actionable feedback to best help you land a literary agent. I personally know the team at Gotham Writers who are all writers themselves and they are doing really solid work over there to help the writing community. Their conference is unlike anything I've ever heard before, and I know that their deadline to apply and register for the pitching roundtables where you spend hours with a literary agent is coming up pretty quickly on September 24th. If you want to learn more about the backstory about how this conference came to be, who's going to be involved, I did a really awesome mini interview with Josh Sippy, who's Gotham Writers Director of Contests and Conferences. And his interview segment is attached to literary agent JL Sturmer's podcast episode. So you can head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash JL Sturmer if you want to hear his interview or if you just want to read more information about this conference and see if it's the right thing for you, head over to writingclasses.com slash writers-conference. Again, that is writingclasses.com slash writers-conference. Now, on to today's guest, Jason Reynolds. Jason is an award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of his many books, including When I Was the Greatest, Boy in the Black Suit, All-American Boys, co-written with Brendan Keeley, As Brave As You, For Everyone, the track series, and Long Way Down, which received both a Newbery honor and a Prince honor, and his upcoming novel, Look Both Ways. In our conversation, we dive into the power of story and its ability to help work through hardships and trauma. We discuss writing from instincts when describing feelings and emotions, and we touch on defining the sweet spot between science and soul in stories and the role that this sweet spot plays in his editing process. Further into our conversation, we talk about survivors' remorse as successful artists, how creating a lane for marginalized voices through access creates opportunities, and we unveil a little bit about the financial side of the publishing industry. Okay, now let's dive right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited. We have Jason Reynolds with us today. Jason, how are you? Thank you so much for stopping by.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited about this. Our community is really pumped to have you on and they're really excited and looking forward to hearing from you. So why don't we kick it off with just rewinding all the way back your earliest memory of how you first fell in love with storytelling?
1: I think, you know, it's interesting. This is one of those questions where I I, remember is a funny thing, because to some extent, I remember sort of being a kid growing up in D.C., sitting at the table with my family members on holidays and hearing them tell stories. I come from a colorful family, so to speak, where everybody's got a story to tell. Especially when people get a little loose. Uh, so, and, and you know, it's like my uncle is telling the same story over and over again every year. My, yeah. my mother is telling the same story. Right. Like, so I grew up around that sort of as a, a kid, just sitting around a bunch of people who tried to one up each other with stories that had been told 10 times over. But as far as sort of reading stories, that wasn't a thing for me. That that wasn't something I was interested in. It wasn't a part of my family dynamic. It wasn't a part of my, my sort of community at large. Um, nobody I knew was, was, you know, reading books. We didn't go to the library. Like that just wasn't a part of my life. Reading seemed like punishment. And so I didn't find my stories through books per se, but I found them through sort of family. I found them through hip hop. And then from there, things sort of evolved, you know, but it just, I, I always tell people I came through the back door, you know?
0: Side note, I completely understand about the uncle repeating the story over and over. I have a few of those on my side as well. (laughs) I'm so curious, how did it actually start? It wasn't really something that was encouraged or really something that it was seen much growing up to now where you are today. Like where in that point of your life did it start tugging at you and you started to be aware that this is a possible career or something that you can actually access, even through the back door?
1: It was a slow evolution. I think for me, I studied rap lyrics, right? So I was a kid, you know, I grew up in eighties, early nineties, rap lyrics were everything. We would buy cassette tapes and read the liner notes. And, And from there I discovered poetry or rather poetry discovered me. And I started to write poems. So poetry was my entree into this entire world, you know? I actually had zero need or necessity or inclination to write stories. None. Like as a kid, it was like, man, I don't read stories. I'm not going to write them. It's too many words. It's too intimidating. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. All the things that I think a lot of us still deal with. And so I just wrote poems for years. And it wasn't until I think I was 10 years old, my grandmother passed away. And it's one of those strange moments in a child's life. You know, the first time you hear your mother crying, which is a weird, weird thing. I wanted to write something to make her feel better. So I wrote a couple of lines that I just kind of made up. And she printed them on the back of the funeral program. And to see the reaction from my family was the first sort of notion that like, ah, there's something happening with language that I did not know about. It wasn't so much storytelling. It was just like language has power. And it's a power that I did not know existed. But now I know. And so now I'm going to lean into this thing. And so I started to write poems sort of every single day, day in, day out, really just trying to figure out ways to use poems as some sort of salve for my family, who at the time was going through all kinds of changes. And from there, over the course of 15 years after that, I'm 25 years old, right? So like we're talking about from 10 years old to 25, it was just poetry. And then at 25, I started to write stories, but I had never wanted to write a story, never wanted to write novels. It wasn't until I met my first editor. I was signed at 2021 wow. to HarperCollins. Yeah, I was a baby.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Belated congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I know. Listen, it wasn't all roses, though. I mean, I got my deal, I got signed, and the book flopped, and I was never to be heard from again for another decade. But I had this editor, and this editor is the one who told me, she was editing my poems, and she told me, um, one day you'll write stories. And I said, I doubt it. And she said, No, you will. And I said, I don't have the education for that. And she said, oh, don't worry, young man. What I know about you is that your intuition will take you farther than your education ever will. And so at 25, I decided to just use my gut and write what I wanted to write and what I wish I had to read when I was a kid.
0: That long time span, right? Yeah. What else was it that you were gravitating towards that you were usually, your heart was calling you out to write?
1: I think there's always a point in every young person's life where they think they have answers that they don't necessarily have. But they know what feels strange to them. They know what feels funny. They know what feels wrong. And so there was a a moment early on, 13, 14, 15 where I'm trying to address the things that I find wrong with the world. It's the same thing I see today with kids, you know, when I'm in schools and everything. I see young people trying to grapple with ideas and systems that are not beyond them, but that they're going to have to grow into, right? Mm -hmm. But they're they're dipping their toe in, in the waters of iniquities and trying to fix the world, you know? And so I had those moments where it's like, let's talk about fatherless households because I lived in a fatherless household without understanding the nuances of adult relation, but like understanding what it feels like to know that none of my friends have fathers, despite whatever happened to those people. It's like, this is wrong. And so I'm making these sort of bifurcated statements. Everything is black and white at that age, you know? And then at 16, it became, I got my own things that I need to work out, right? I'm 16 years old. I've dealt with all sorts of things at this point. I've lost friends. I've lost family members. I'm dealing with my issues with my father. I'm dealing with issues with my siblings. I'm dealing with issues with my mother. And now I'm starting to exercise my own issues. I'm starting to be very honest about how I feel and who I am at that age. And the pain is starting to come out. My mom at the time was suffering from cancer. And I had that to write about the fear of losing a parent. My brother is dealing with all sorts of things that I wish he hadn't had to deal with. And I'm writing about him and about what that feels like for me to watch my big brother, my hero, deal with the things that he was dealing with. And so there's this long stretch where I'm just kind of therapizing myself in hopes that my honesty will connect to the humanity of another person. Um and we can kind of build an empathetic space. Right. That's how I felt as a teenager. It's like, yo, I can use this to build bonds and I can use this to be honest. I may not be able to ever say this, but if I say it in verse then it sort of gives me a strange force field that insulates me in a way where I can still be honest without feeling I'm quite as vulnerable. Ooh. So and that was sort of the process. Yeah.
0: I was listening to Long Way Down on an audiobook. The way you were even reading it was beautiful. And I knew you wrote it in the story through poetry. But even when you're reading it, I could visualize it on the page I know you said at the end of the interview of this audiobook, these were like the ghosts coming back to visit, almost like the Christmas Carol, right? Right. So when you were writing that, where was the inspiration coming from and what then gave you that urgency to write the book when you did?
1: I mean, that book is sort of rooted in my own experiences and my own trauma. You know, I was 19 when a dear friend of mine was murdered and he wasn't the first friend of mine who had been killed, but for some reason, his felt different. There are certain people you lose in life where you say that was not supposed to happen, but there are other people you lose in life where you say that was an inevitability. Unfortunately, if you grew up in certain environments right and so for him, it was kind of like it was like that that wasn't supposed to happen. It was a different kind of sting, a different kind of anger and I just remember being a kid and, and going to his mom's house and and telling his mom that we would avenge his death and that's something that I think that we have to. I think we have to be a little more honest about it. I think, you know, America struggles with sex and violence and anger, right? We just have a hard time talking about sex, violence, and anger. We don't mind talking about these things in really sort of cosmetic ways. But when it gets down into the nitty gritty, when it gets down into sort of the ugliness of it all, but the honesty of it all, I think we struggle. And so here we are as children who are attempting or at least who are who have decided that they will attempt murder. Because they don't know, we, when I say they, I mean we, because we didn't know where to put the pain. And because we did know that police officers would undervalue the situation and not even look. And so we played by a certain kind of rule. We had codes, we had rules, and this is just the way it was. And and we never questioned it. And his mother blocked the door and she told us to let it go. And so we let it go. And I'm glad we did. But I understand what it feels like to feel like you're trapped in that block of ice, Right. And you don't know that the ice is slowly melting, the ice of grief, the ice of anger, the ice of trauma. And you don't know that the ice is melting slowly. It just feels like you're frozen and it feels like time is standing still and that you will feel this way forever. I understand that. I also know what it feels like for people to automatically assume you are a gangster or a criminal or a thug. All these names that we use to call people and children so that we don't have to call them children. Right? If I can rename you, then I don't have to see you. Right. And and what we should be saying is these are young people dealing with anger. These are young people who have seen things that you may never see, who have felt things that you may never feel. And perhaps we should address that before we get to sort of like this is an issue with, you know, it's like gun violence, gun violence. Yes, gun violence is a big deal. But when are we going to talk about all the things that lead to a child picking up a gun? And and that's sort of where the emphasis is all.
0: There was one interview that you specifically said you honor trauma in a way where you want the readers to understand how do you then go about transcribing trauma mm. of the everyday realities into something that is digestible for young readers while keeping it real and not censoring because i think the, the issue is there's a lot of censorship how are you able to do it and get that message across i mean I'm sure there's intention behind your writing and the way you approach it. So I'm wondering if this is like a conscious thing or subconscious already innate in you, or if this is something that you can actually talk out loud and expand on with me.
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there are elements of it I think I can explain. I think here's the truth. The truth is is that you, you can't show what you don't know. And so I think at the end of the day, I try to spend my time with young people and i ask them questions. I try to pay attention to the way that they're articulating their own pain and think about who I was at that age and try my best to remember the discomfort of it all, right? What does it feel like to have to say a thing that feels unsayable? What does that feel like? And how can I transcribe that on the page? So instead of transcribing the traumatic experience, the traumatic act, I try to transcribe the traumatized interior of a person. And what does that feel and sound and smell and look like? And what that usually looks like is an animal stuck in your throat, right? What that usually looks like is trying to find language that does not exist to describe a feeling that has never been felt. And that's where poetry comes into play. Even when I'm writing prose, I use poetic devices because poetry has a way of assigning symbolism and language and meaning to things that don't seem to have any language to be assigned. Like for instance, if you're reading a book like Ghost and Ghost says, you know, and Ghost has been traumatized by his father and Ghost is trying to describe the way that he feels, he says, I got so much mad in me because he can't figure out how to say anything else. It's like I just got so much mad or, or that that he feels red on the inside. These are sort of the ways that I tried to do it, so that it feels honest and it feels real for a young person who also is struggling to express a part of themselves that has been told to, that they should be ashamed of. Now, there are other parts to the process that I just can't explain. I've been shooting from the hip since I was 10. I don't know... If I can give you a one plus one or a formula for these things, because I think if I could give you the formula, then the work doesn't work anymore. If there is a formula, then the work becomes trite and hackneyed and formulaic. A lot of this is gut work. A lot of this is human work, right? Me saying, I am a human being. There are parts of me that I have to remain tapped into that are, that are fully human, not adult, not grown up human, not adult human, just human, human. The parts of me that are still a child, the parts of me that are still trying to figure out what it means to be who I am every single day and put that on the page. Because I think young people, they know that insecurity, that, that the feelings of inadequacy. I still have all those feelings. Adults have just learned to, to pretend like they don't. Whereas I'm, I try to keep mine as raw as possible and at the forefront of my life so that I can use them and turn them into something that is connected.
0: When it comes to gut instinct work... How do you approach your editing so that you still maintain the core and the magic of what the origin is about without really, you know, dissipating?
1: Right, or or sanitizing. My theory is that there's a sweet spot between science and soul. I think you have to have the science of language, the science of writing. We all have to know how language works and how structure works and how to form a sentence. These are things that you just have to know. But then there's like soul, right? Now, you can't have all of soul and no and no science because... I think that also makes for an annoying thing to read, right? It it becomes arduous (laughs) to try to figure out, right? Your whole, it's all feeling, right? But if it's all science and no soul, then we're bored to death, right? It's flat. Mm -hmm. I try to figure out where that sweet spot is in the editing process in particular. The way I like to think about it, though, is like if you, I mean, you're a New Yorker, so you know, like, let's say you go downtown, let's say you're in Soho, and you're looking at the Balthazar sign, you know, Balthazar, the restaurant down on Spring Street.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And if you look at that sign from across the street, it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful signs in the city to me. And it's hand-painted.
0: Oh, I did not know that.
1: I met the dude who did it years ago because he was painting the window of a store I used to work in 10 years ago. And so he did that sign. It's a hand-painted sign. And he said, look, If you get really, he said, people stand across the street, they say, man, Balthazar, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. He said, if you get right up on it, you'll get to see all of the squiggles and and, and all the mistakes that I made when painting that sign. He said, but the, the, the thing is, is that the human mind recognizes the imperfection of the human hand as perfection. And that if I were to make a perfect sign, everyone would say the sign feels a little strange. So the way I think about my writing when I'm editing is it needs to be functional for the reader. It needs to be ushering the reader through the story. But there have to be jagged elements, human elements, imperfections in the story or or in the language, in the sentences, fragments, one-word sentences, ellipses, em dashes. Sometimes I break the line in the middle of prose without punctuation. Sometimes I throw a run-on sentence if I feel like it works in this particular space, if the narrator or if the story calls for a ramble right? Or if it calls for digression, if it calls, like whatever the story calls for, those are the moments where I say, all right, let's put some of me in it right here. You know, let's put a double negative right here because that's how I am and how I feel and what I think it calls for. That sort of jagged moment, that that one moment that kind of thrust you out of this sort of you know, hyper-functional nature of it all, I think, is the human moment. And it's like, ah, that feels right, even though it's technically wrong. Grammar-wise, it's wrong. All those things are wrong, but it feels human. And that human part of it is what makes me want to continue to read. That's what it is. It's no different than what we see musicians do all the time. Nobody wants to hear a drummer just drum without every now and then reminding us he's back there or she's back there with a trill or a rim shot or whatever it is, or a solo, right? And those are the moments that makes the hair stand up on the backs of our necks.
0: Yes. Oh, You sound like you're reciting poetry so beautifully, (laughs) just even giving an answer. I know we only have you for a little bit longer, but there was one other interview that I came across of yours dealing with survivor's remorse that so many brown and black people feel when they achieve any level of superpower. And then you gave the example of being at Thanksgiving. If that's okay, we can just expand on that and unpack it a little bit further.
1: Sure. I think at the end of the day, neither one of us, I mean, I, I will be a safe guess to say that, at least for me, I didn't know any writers, right? Like, that wasn't a thing, right? When I was growing up, this was not an opportunity. It wasn't an option. It wasn't something that you saw yourself doing. You know, I always crack a joke where I say, you know, Judy Bloom never came through the hood, right? She never came to see us, right? She didn't pop by to say hello in the way that so many writers now can show up in the neighborhood or show up at the schools. That wasn't a thing. And you can't be what you can't see. And because I have a mother who was raised in the 1950s and 60s in the American South, for her, the safest bet was the 401k route, right? You find you a job and you lock it down. She worked the same job for 45 years. And then as soon as she retired, took another job, which she has been doing now for 20 years, as a teacher, which she's been doing now for 20 years, right? This is a woman who only knows security. You do whatever you do that can be secure. Happiness and dreams are inconsequential. Security equals success. Safety equals success. And that celebrities and famous people and newspaper articles and magazines and TV interviews and radio interviews, that's for other people. That's not for people in our household or in our community. That's for a rarefied bunch like aliens that seem so far away, right? That's the way it was sort of described for us, right? And so my life, though it has broken the mold, it has also caused... An interesting dynamic shift in my family, one because the baby of the bunch, my younger brother, he now is a musician and knows that like I can do this because I've had an example, whereas I didn't have an example, right my older brother wasn't at him. you know this was not his way, or my older sister, but my the baby of the bunch says, Well, I have an example, so I'm going to go into the arts and I'm going to really do it, and I know I can do it because one of my siblings has done it, which is amazing, right? You shift the entire trajectory of your family, but when you come home and you've gotten back off an airplane from the Edinburgh Book Festival and you pop in to see your mother, who will always be my number one person, and she can't fathom that castles are real, it does something to you. Or when you have Thanksgiving dinner with your family or whatever family functions are, and you want to tell them about your experiences and your travel and the food you've and all these sorts of things. And because they can't connect or relate to it, they'd rather crack a joke to say, oh, Jason's changed or Jason's bougie or Jason's this. And that I have to then condescend. And when I mean condescend, I mean the actual definition of condescend, not the colloquialized version of condescension. What I mean is the true version of condescend is, is that the person who has any sort of power basically takes off the cool. I hate saying come down, but you basically...
0: Taking off the cloak.
1: You take off the cloak, right? Exactly. And so I have to then condescend to make sure that everybody at the table feels comfortable with something that I worked so hard to achieve. Mm. It's an interesting thing. and, And they're proud of me, but they... My mother said, son, after years and years of sort of fighting with me about wanting to do this for a living, when I finally was able to make anything for myself, my mother said, son, I love you and I apologize, but it's, it's coming from a place of love and fear, but I want you to know that I'm inspired, and now I wonder what I could have done had I taken more risks with my own life. It's a very real thing. And so, you know, I have some of that remorse, and some of that like, man, why, why me, and why not this woman who's given her entire life for me? Why me, and why not my older brother who was dealt a bad hand, but Deserves the world. You know what I mean? Like I have all of those feelings that I have to try to sort of figure out and suss it out. And I don't think I'll ever be able to feel comfortable with any of it. But I do know that because it has happened to me and because I I was the one given the thing, I have to justify every single day of my life. Why? And that means I can't take it for granted. I have to work. There is no laying back. There is no easy. No, no, no. I work hard every single day because I have an opportunity to do something that no one in my family will ever have an opportunity to do. The least I could do is respect and honor them by working hard at it.
0: As somebody that is seen as a cultural philosopher, any advice from the work you've done already, your observations, how we can create a lane for others to succeed, especially from marginalized communities that we don't usually hear from?
1: Thank you for this question and that because this is a, my mother always says, you can't be a king unless you can be a kingmaker. This is something that I take very, 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 very seriously. So there are a few things and all of these things require breaking rules, right? They require breaking down social norms. They require breaking down social niceties um, that we all adhere to without ever questioning why we adhere to these things. (laughs) And so For me, the first and foremost, what I do regularly, at least two or three times a year, is when I find a young, specifically a young writer, specifically a writer who is of color or is marginalized, and if their work is solid, and I do read people's work, because I have to, people read mine, right? And so for somebody that I'm really sort of like, all right, this person's got a thing, they've got this, they've got that, and I get the sense that they're willing to work. And when I say work, I mean like lay it on the line, because that's the other thing. Everybody is so concerned with that, which is difficult that they haven't sort of created fortitude for themselves to say that I don't care if it's difficult or not. And so it's always the question of like, is it hard to do this? Is it going to be a hard task? Well, if that's the question that you have, you're not ready, Mm. right? You're not ready for this, right? Because difficulty and ease are irrelevant questions. The only question that has to be asked is, are you going to do this or are you not going to do this? Now, if that's your mentality, then I'm rocking with you, right? And what I do multiple times a year is I walk them through the door. We go, hey, you go. let me see your work. Cool. I'm going to call my agent. Hey, Here's what's happening. I'd like for you to read this. That's the missing component that we don't like to talk about, right? Is that the X factor to opportunity is access, right? And that for me, it does not hurt me, nor does it dim my light to walk into the space where I know I have leverage and say, check this person out. Nothing happens to me if I do this, right? Those of us who have the power, and right now in the literary space, I have a bit of power, then we need to stick our necks out for those who have less. That's what happened to me, right? My story, the part of the story that we didn't get into is that when I actually did get signed and I got started writing stories, there was a cadre of people who made space at the table for me. This didn't just happen to me. I did not do this myself. There was Jacqueline Woodson. There was Walter Dean Myers. There was Christopher Myers. There was Laurie Hall Anderson. There was Rita Williams-Garcia. There was Sharon Draper. These were writers who were established who said, we are going to continue to say this young man's name on a microphone in magazines and newspapers. We are going to make sure that every festival and conference knows he exists. This wasn't me, right? And so now it's my responsibility to do the same with young writers coming up who say, I just need a shot. I promise I will knock the door off the jam if I just get a shot. And I do my best to do that. And who's come from that are a bunch of young writers, people like Candace Elo, who's coming out next year, Mahogany Brown, who is now, you know, she wrote Woke Baby and she wrote Black Girl Magic and a whole bunch of other books that's coming out. And that's what it's about for me. You know, the other thing that I do is I'm the artistic director of the Rhode Island Writers Colony, which is a writer's residence up in Rhode Island, started by a man named Brooke Stevenson, who unfortunately we lost five years back. And this is a colony for black and brown writers at any level. There is no workshop. There is none of that. It's just space, space and time. You get two weeks to just do your thing because the other X factor is just space and time For us to be able to do the work that we so desperately want to do. I've been running this residency for, this is the seventh year coming up, and Elizabeth Acevedo has come through this residency. A young man named Mateo Oscaripol, whose book is coming out soon, has come through this residency. Like tons of writers have come through this residency and are doing incredible work in this industry, but they just needed the time and space in the community to build themselves. That's it. I share resources, I talk about money which I know everybody's afraid of. But the reason that I talk about money with these people, with the people in my inner circle who are, or with younger people trying to get in the game isn't because I want to entice them or dissuade them, right? <laughs> Either way, because it's complicated, but because that's how our mentors talk to me about it. They wanted me to understand that this was business as much as it is art, right? And we have to make sure that the art is A1. We have to make sure we're prepared to step into an industry that will rob you blind if you don't know what you're doing. And the only way for us to know that is to talk about it. But we've all been raised to believe that to talk about money is in poor taste. And I always question who taught us that. I feel like there are things being kept from us and we continue to perpetuate the keeping from us instead of saying, like, let's really talk about it. Let's really weigh out what you should be expecting. What is an overshot? What is when you're a little too big for your britches? What's highway robbery? What a contract should look like, what your agent's cut should be, what your what your foreign rights should be. Let's really talk about all these things, so that if you are fortunate enough to get a deal, you come into that thing equipped and prepared and armed to create not just beautiful art, but also potentially a life for yourself. Alice Walker gave me the same advice. Nikki Giovanni's giving me this advice. Right. This is something that we have to talk about, no matter how uncomfortable. It may or may not be, you know?
0: Yes. Oh, my God. I love talking about money on this podcast. Okay, I know we're literally out of
1: time. It's all good. We can do one more. It's all good if you you got another one.
0: No, I was just going to say in the future, I want to bring you back to then really get into the money talk because that's going to be at least half an hour, 45 minutes an hour. Let's do it. I actually had somebody on recently named Laura Adams from Money Podcast Mm -hmm. to discuss specifically about finances for freelancers. A lot of people in my community have voiced that think they think they're set once they become a writer (laughs) and they're going to quit their day job. They're going to do this. I'm like, no, uh uh, from all the interviews I've had, it sounds like that's a really terrible idea. It sounds like you should hold on to your day job. Until you have enough savings saved up, until you have enough to know that you can lean back and you are guaranteed, and you've signed those contracts, you know those payments are coming in, that is gonna be able to keep you afloat for years.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You gotta shatter that illusion that as soon as you write your debut book, boom.
1: Tony Morrison kept the job for her entire career.
0: Holy shit. I see. I had no idea about that. And that just goes to show that who does anyone else think they are? <laughs> I mean, if you have any like major tip about money related stuff, please play mama bear right now.
1: <laughs> I think at the end of the day, I think the one thing, if, if anything that I would say about the money is it's hard to wrap up in a single sentence. There are a few things I think really quickly, just number one. Understand that no one is doing you a favor. This is a business. This is service is rendered. The money you're being paid is the money you're being paid for a service. And what happens is we believe that it's like we've been sort of graced with some sort of benevolent venture where it's like, oh, we're gifting you this money. No, they're paying you for a particular service. The amount of money you make in advance is the money you have to make back before you ever start seeing any royalties. The average person does not see a royalty check. And that is another misconception. The average writer never earns out their advance and sees a royalty check. It is a very rare thing. It's it's so interesting. It's a very rare thing to earn out your advance and get a royalty check. The other thing you have to remember is that the more your advance, the more likely the publishing company is to put the machine behind you to make sure that your book does well because they have to make their investment back. Right. So the reason that your agent fights for more money isn't just because they want you to be rich, because the truth is that the likelihood of you being rich is slim. It's because the more they can push the publisher to invest, the more skin the publisher has in the game and the more likelihood the publisher puts the machine behind that work to make sure that that book is actually successful. The publisher has to protect their investment. This is economics. This is business, you know? So that's a small thing. One day we'll have a conversation and we'll really get into the nitty gritty of it, you know? <laughs> yes, we'll
0: get into the nitty gritty in the near future. Thank you so much for that. And I didn't even know that little tidbit. I really thought when they try to get the advanced payment, that's like just for the artist, blah, blah, blah. Didn't even think business aspect. Nope. Yeah. That means you're going to have a bigger machine behind you to lift you up and to get the word out. Yep. Holy crap. Thank you so much, Jason. No can you tell listeners where they can find you and follow you along with your adventures and your work and, and everything that you've been doing?
1: Of course, of course. You can find me on all the platforms at Jason Reynolds83, Twitter, Instagram, and everything else. Jason Wrights Books is my website, JasonWrightsbooks.com. Check that out. And I am Jason Reynolds is another website where it features basically thousands of poems I've written over the years. That's a whole separate thing. And then lastly, and most importantly, look both ways. My newest book comes out in a couple of weeks, October 8th. Check that out too.
0: I'm so excited. Congratulations, Jason.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Talk soon.
0: And that wraps up my conversation with Jason Reynolds. Jason, thank you so much for your transparency and sharing your knowledge with our community. I loved chatting with you. All right, storytellers, now we're going to jump into my conversation with your fellow storyteller, Melissa Voby. Hey, storytellers, I am so excited to introduce to you Melissa Bobi, who is an amazing storyteller in our community. She's been so supportive for years and has shown up for our in-person event with the sweetest gift to wish me a happy birthday and 88 cups of tea a happy birthday, and has been supporting us not only vocally, but also tangibly because she wants to show her support for us. And I'm so grateful, Melissa, to have you on the podcast. You are incredible. Thank you for everything you've done for this community.
2: You've really helped us to get to where we are today. I'm so excited to have you on. Yeah, and thank you so much. I know I, I went over this with you already, but you're amazing and, and just gratitude from your community of storytellers.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. Well, why don't we kick it off with what are you working on right now?
2: I'm doing final revisions on an upper middle grade magical girl narrative called Protectress. It's about a girl, Christina, who is trying to survive the end of eighth grade. She's not the best student, not the worst, you know, but not the best. She's already super tall and she's aware she can see over the tops of all the boys in the grade, their heads. So she's feeling a little awkward about that. She's a little concerned. Her besties are going to ghost her. She's got three friends she's very close with. And her parents, especially her mom, are a little overprotective. So, you know, normal, stressful eighth grade stuff. And then she stumbles upon a magical locket that gives her power over the weather, specifically the ability to summon rainstorms. And without spoiling too much, this locket comes into her possession just before some evil, quite creepy forces start pursuing her three best friends. And they're depending on her to keep them safe for the time being, until the next thing happens. And I'm not going to go too far into it because I don't want to spoil anything.
0: Oh my gosh, I love this so much. Where was this inspiration coming from?
2: This is funny. This book has been with me since I was (gasps) 12-ish. This my first book, air quotes, this, it looks nothing like it did when 11 year old Melissa wrote it. Um, There were wolves in the rain and stuff, all kinds of weird stuff that's not happening now. But um, this book, you know, this was, I was so proud when I was 11, because this was the first thing I finished in my little composition notebook by hand. And I put it away for years and forgot about it. And then when I was about 20 um, in college, I was going through some old things at my parents' place. And I found it and I was like, you know, not this, but I think there's a thread of an idea in here. And so I rewrote it and then I put it away. And then about in in 2015, my friend, Eva, who you met, Eva Papka, um, she's in my writing group. She and I had this phone call where we were both like, I'm miserable, are you miserable? Yes, why did we stop writing? Weren't we, we, we'd gotten these day jobs and we were like, weren't we doing this so we could be writers? We've known each other since high school. Um, and we started writing again and I resurrected that book again. Um, and I put it away. We finished our first manuscript summer of, of 2016 and it wasn't ready yet to go to query, but I was like, we're close. And then this summer, I think, because now I'm working in a a children's library and I'm around my, my middle graders all the time. I, it just came back to me and and I was like, oh, i I know how to do this now. And so we've re- revised it. And um, it's almost done, and i I'm planning to go to query beginning of October. So oh wow, oh my
0: gosh. Congratulations. I'm Thank feeling you. so proud. And wow, what does it really say about having? close friends and true
2: support system around you. I have to tell you, like, I have two critique partners. Eva Papka is one of them. The other is Sarah Carrero. They're both fantasy writers. They're brilliant women who have supported my writing and me every step of the way. They're also supporters of the podcast. They love you. And, you know, we've been on this journey together. I never, I never think of myself as like just a writer. I'm always connected with other writers, And I could not be doing what I'm doing without their constant support and their brilliance.
0: What was the most difficult thing that you came across, whether it was during your writing process of this book or in life?
2: So I'm in my 15th year in college right now. I'm on my sixth degree right now. (laughs) And, you know, it was intentional and not. And the reason it's, it's taking me so long to finish is because I set out on a career path to be an English professor. I still love teaching, even though I don't do it anymore. And also because people who were advising me told me, you'll have time for your writing. And so in the 10 years it took me to earn the four graduate degrees that were going to let me go into that field, adjunctification t- took over universities. And we really lost our full-time tenure drop, track job positions. They, they don't really exist anymore. And so we went from my PhD program having like a 67% placement rate when I started to like my friend who graduated a semester before me going, hey, I got the job list for my field. I can only apply to five jobs this year. And I said, um, you know, in the United States. And he said, no. And he's in Germany right now. <laughs> had to leave the country. You are joking. And, you know, there there is no market right now. Adjuncts make ten to $20,000 a year for work weeks that can get up to 80 or 90 hours with no health care. It, and it's not a life. It's a lot. You know, I interviewed for a job and I ended up consoling the woman who was going to hire me to be an adjunct. She was like, of this university is adjuncts now. She was like, we're all struggling. So I I am not someone who's going to stay with a sinking ship. That's just not who I am. I need health care because stress, which academia gives you plenty of. (laughs) In the last eight years, I've developed asthma. I was not asthmatic before graduate school. I've had two major surgeries. I've been on prednisone, a steroid, for emergency. Situations maybe eight times, um, so this really affected my health. Oh my gosh! Mentally, physically, completely. And so that phone call that I mentioned before with one of my critique partners, that was a lifeline. And it's why I was telling you that this podcast was meaningful. Other writers have been meaningful. What I see is these lifelines that were thrown to me when I was just in this completely dark room. And when Eva called me and was like, hey, why did we stop writing? It was like we were in this hole of a dungeon. I thought I was alone in the hole. And then I heard my old friend calling out to me. And I was like, oh, I'm not alone in here anymore. And we started to dig our way out together. And then when we met Sarah at NaNoWriMo, and NaNoWriMo has been a huge part of my progress too. Um, I know you interviewed Grant Faulkner, our Executive Director. Grant's wonderful. And NaNo, for the three of us, has been this thing, you know, we're, we're municipal liaisons for the New York City chapter now. We lead all of the events around the city with a few other people who are MLs too. And we try to give back as much as possible to that community because it allowed us to find each other. It allowed us to learn how to make a practice of writing such that this does not feel like an intangible dream anymore. This feels like something very real and something that gives us all life in a way that we really deeply needed. Can you give us a snapshot of you in your timeline right now? Sure. I mean, it's funny because I, I feel like I went from that lost person who was trying to find her way back to writing to like a writing machine. <laughs> um, the three of us, my critique group and I, like we meet monthly and we push each other daily. We're in constant contact about the work and I think we're all at least on book number 3 we've written since we met each other which was only a few years ago. So I'm working on Protectress. I'm working on getting that ready for query for early October. I'm also still waiting to hear back from the summer queries on a speculative short story collection that I'd finished in like early spring of this year. This is a a rejection story that I think is good for people to hear. So I've gotten a few full manuscript requests. Two were for that project. One of them was a a wonderful and terrible rejection because she said, I love this book. I love your voice. I love the concept. I don't know who I would sell this to. And so I have to pass. And I was like, man. (laughs) But I think that when an agent does that for you, and I I really want to, if people are listening who are in the query trenches with me, I know rejections suck so much. They suck even more when you hit the triple digits. I'm sure I'm going to hit the quadruple soon and it's going to suck beyond what I can even imagine. But when people are kind enough and gracious enough to agents to give you specific feedback in the rejection, listen closely because it was devastating to hear. I don't know who to sell this to, but that says to me, well, maybe I've got something here that's a little different and different isn't bad. Different means you're going in a new direction and somebody might know who to sell this to. And if the voice is good and the concept is good, then I'm on the right track. And even though it's a failure, it's also a victory. So that project is still under review right now. I don't know what's going to happen with it. And then um, I have a novella that like, I had written. Sarah and I had written for the tour open call for novellas, I think last June, not this past June, but the June before. And I wrote this little novella and halfway through it was it was it came out of me in five weeks. And halfway through I had given it to to the two of them and I was like, guys, I think this might be garbage. And they both read it. And Eva goes to me, This is my favorite thing you've ever written. And I was like, oh, okay, not garbage. And that's why critique partners are important as a PSA to anybody listening. You need someone to tell you, hey, this isn't garbage sometimes because self-doubt is real. So, you know, I haven't done anything with that. It didn't get into tour, which is fine, but what I'm doing right now is I'm preparing to self-publish that because I want to learn that process. So many writers that I've encountered on Twitter um, and through conversation are hybrid writers. They do some self-publishing, some traditional, some indie, and so I want to do my homework. And I'm going to use that little novella as a a sort of test project because, um, you know, you can't really query with a novella; it's t- it's too small. But it's humble enough for me to try this out. So. I'm planning to print my own galleys in November. I have some friends who are willing to be early reviewers. I hope to release that in like maybe early winter, um maybe like January. So, yeah, there's a lot happening, but I I feel like I'm moving forward and and that's that's what I want to be doing. So,
0: thank you on behalf of our community for sharing that with everybody and also let everybody know, what is it that you're hoping your stories will do and how it will affect and impact people once they have it in their
2: hands. You know, I'm, I'm really writing for girls and for women. And that doesn't mean that I don't hope that people who aren't girls or women don't enjoy my books. Of course I do. But, um, you know, in 2016, NanoRimo was going on when the election results came in. We were in like, what, day four of NaNoWriMo? So it was very early. And I remember Sarah setting up a safe space in case anybody needed quiet and just needed to not talk. There was a lot of fear. And many of our writers are women. Um, I would say the majority of, of the people who come. And a lot of them were saying, like, I can't write today. I can't write today. Like, I don't have it in me. And Yin, I swear to God, I was on fire that day. I was like, I have to write today. And I'm I'm not criticizing those women. I understand what they were going through. I think they were smart to sit in it and to support each other. But for me, there was this sense of urgency. And okay, like like if if I'm writing stories for especially for girls, but but for women too, this is the time to be doing this. And now is the time to really push these stories forward because I hope that I'm speaking to experience that we share and that a struggle that we all understand that is going to resonate with whoever reads what I'm writing. And I hope that the writing helps them as it has helped me.
0: Melissa, I don't even know what better way to end off.
2: Melissa, thank you so much
0: thank for your you. time. And please let everybody know where they can find you on social media to keep tabs on you and to show support and root you on and where they can just get in touch
2: and say hi. Okay. So this is easy to remember. So the name Melissa means B. So I am a book bumble across social media on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, My WordPress is a bookbumble.wordpress.com. I have an article up about 88 cups of tea. (laughs) So Look out for that because I talk about highlights, some of my favorite of your episodes. Also, if you follow at Word Magic Chat, it's a Twitter chat that Eva and Sarah and myself co-host every Tuesday night at 7.30 for writers. We love new participants and we ask lots of fun questions. We encourage you to keep writing. It's a really positive space. We have great participants already. So if you're looking for something to do on a Tuesday night at 7.30 Eastern time, come join us. We have a lot of fun.
0: Alrighty, storytellers, and that wraps up our episode for this week. Melissa, thank you so much for being such a bright light in our community. And I am so grateful to have you as one of our storytellers. And thank you as well for sharing your storytelling journey. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hello to Jason on Twitter at Jason Reynolds 83. And you can stop by and say hi to Melissa at A Book Bumble. To find all the resources and books mentioned in Jason's episode along with the tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Jason's show notes page at 88cupsoftee.com slash podcast slash Jason Reynolds. If you'd love more 88 Cups of Tea content, head over to our website at 88cupsoftea.com to read our articles and essays written by some of your favorite authors like Sarah Faring, Julie Kibler, and Brittany Morris that are all out right now. Trust me, if you love our podcast episodes, you are going to love these written pieces. Have a productive week, and I will catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.